Welcome to For the Love of Dogs with Dennis Wolf. Hey, happy Friday. If you are on the East Coast or most of the U.S., there's rain, but it's it's good rain. We just need to send it to my good buddy Richard in uh, in Houston because they've got a drought. And, you know, this is one of those crazy times of year. You're now into May. Um, happy birthday. Would have been uh, 97 years old. My mother would have been uh, May 6th here. It's a, it's a beautiful day. It's raining, um, but it's a beautiful day because we're here to enjoy it. And that's what today we're going to be talking about is just how to enjoy your animals a little more in the midst of the disaster of COVID that just won't go away. Dear Lord, when is this just going to stop? The insanity. It's like that uh, Susan Powder with a stop the insanity with the diet, except instead of that, it's really just, you know, we're putting so much negative energy into the universe. We talk about things. We're worried. You know, I deal with so many people and so many dogs and so many horses and so many kids and so many families. And I think that we start after a while not having gratitude. And I think the greatest thing you can do is to have gratitude. So, yes, uh, I was in the vet hospital with yet another dog, and I have two actually recuperating six days apart uh, from major, major surgeries. And I lost my Wispa, who nobody knows yet, but that's out there now. I'm going to talk about that a little bit in future weeks. But I want to talk about being grateful for what we have instead of always being sad or whining or or moping or jealous or whatever over something we don't have. Think about what you have. And if you could say, what is the last thing that you want to lose? It would probably be your family. Uh, Some people would say, no, that's the first thing I want to lose. The dogs. Dogs are usually, you know, we have a good dog, even if you have a dog who's not the greatest dog. They are just wonderful. Be grateful for every day you have that dog. Don't yell at your dog because he had an accident. Don't hit your dog ever, but don't hit him because you're frustrated because you had a bad day because you can change their behavior negatively and you can change their behavior positively. I was actually uh, a few days ago up at a vet hospital with one of my dogs, and there was a woman there who had a dog who was sick, Um, but she was a disaster and I don't know if she was all there. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure she wasn't all there. And I just kind of smiled and said, you know, Hey, this is like the best place. You're in in good hands. Your dog's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Just, you know, the dog is, you know, you have such a cute dog. It's such a cute dog. And I was, you know, just trying to be friendly and, you know, as one of the other patients there. And working with all that and talking about just like literally six, not even maybe 30 seconds talking about, you know, what do you like to do with the dog? What's her favorite toy or whatever. And, you know, some people just want to be miserable. And and I think that's just what happens. There are people who no matter what, like my uh, father-in-law also used to say, I used to call him Pop. Pop used to always say, you know, some people would bitch if you hung them with a new rope. And I'd say, Pop, it's supposed to be hanged them because hung is for a picture, hang is for a person. And he'd go, you know what I mean. But that's exactly what we need to talk about today. Be grateful. Listen, we all wish our dogs could live forever. But you know what? Realistically, if we had every dog we have or every pet we've had that we were in love with, if we did have them live forever, we never would have gotten to experience the joy of all the other animals we've had before and after that one, because we would only know that one. And I think it's really important for us all, especially with the craziness going on and the government, which it's just like, I don't even know what country I live in anymore. But I do know that no matter what happens, my dogs are a steady and consistent feature of my life. My dogs will always be there for me, and it's okay to be broken up about your dogs, but remember when you have an animal or a person, but especially an animal who is getting a little older or who's got something going on that's, you know, the dog is not feeling well, 
The worst thing in the world you can do is to sit in a waiting room crying and sobbing with your dog on your lap and making that dog more upset and taking a chance of hurting your dog because the dog's like, oh, my gosh, mommy's so upset and I don't know what to do. And the dog gets worse just because of you. And I get it. I get it. Listen, nobody loves dogs or cares for them like I do. I promise you that. I've had people tell me, several of my veterinarians through the years, when I die, I want to come back as one of your dogs. That's a pretty high compliment coming from several different veterinarians. So I want you to think about this. When your dog has a problem and you're going, let's say he's sick or he's got an injury, and you go into your vet's office, and your dog maybe doesn't like the vet's office to start with, but because your other dog that you had previously didn't like the vet's office, guess what you do? As soon as you walk in, uh-oh, there's another dog. And you do that death grip on the leash, and your current dog goes, uh-oh, what's wrong? It's like if you grab somebody by the, by the shirt when they're walking, and you go, oh. they go, why? What's wrong? What's wrong? And it's amazing how quickly you can actually cause that problem. You can cause the dog to have a worse time than it normally would have because you are too busy focusing on what could be wrong than hoping that it'll be okay. Obviously, we're going to get the medical attention. That's not what I'm talking about. Of course, you're going to get medical attention. But take a few deep breaths. Breathe. Calm yourself down as much as you can because the dog is going to pick up on it, and then their heart rate is going to go up. They're going to get anxious. It's not going to help anything. Remember, one of the most important things in the world is to keep your dog as calm and as relaxed as possible when you're anywhere, but especially in an uncomfortable and unfamiliar setting in a scary place such as a vet's office. The best thing you can do is to stroke your dog, think of the happy times you spend with him or her, imagine like, oh, you know, I wish... I could, you know, fill in the blank there. I wish I could, whatever, because that is going to put you into that mindset. Like, oh, look, we can go to the dog park. Okay. And even if it's the end, even if your dog is kind of towards the end of his life, don't make those last few days, weeks, or months miserable. And I know, hey, listen, we're all guilty of it. We all do it. I did that with Wispa. I watched Wispa. Because I said, you know, she's she's got cancer. She's got three different cancer. It wound up she had four different kinds of cancer. Um, and, you know, we got rid of two of them. And the other two she had, but I don't think that's what she died from. But the crazy thing was, I'm telling you this, but I'm also telling you that I sat there, I think it was about five years ago, about a year into her first cancer, and I said, oh, my gosh. I'm not going to have her that much longer. Oh my gosh, she's got cancer. I got to, you know, I got to enjoy every moment with her, right? So five years later, she passed, or I helped her go. But for those five years, I could have had even more joy. And, And granted, I mean, I did enjoy her and we did things and, you know, I wasn't like I was sitting there worried the whole time and like, oh my gosh, oh my God. But I'm just thinking now on the other end of it, I could have probably had even more fun with her because I was so worried that something was going to happen to her that I kind of killed my own party, right? I rained on my own parade. I didn't do it badly, but, oh, I've seen some of you. I've seen some of you. Boy, have I seen some of you who not only rain on a parade, but you're like having a thunderstorm and a tornado and a hurricane and an a hailstorm all in the same day because you are getting so, so, so obviously, and, you know, I understand it, but you're getting so, so focused on the negative that you're actually going to hurt your dogs, kind of not to hurt their feelings, but hurt them inadvertently because they're going to think, oh, no, oh, no, I have to take care of mommy or I have to take care of daddy And that's not what we want to do. You guys are worrying because you love your pets. 
for listening. I mean, that's great. And we love you guys for loving your animals so much and taking such good care of them. But part of that is also trying to do the right thing for them all the time. So when your dog might be perhaps, you know, in, in a bad way or has a problem, then, you know, your energy, like the way you put that out there, and I know I do it, so I know you guys are going to do it. So try to think about that when you go to the vet's office. And how about if it's even for just a regular checkup, but you know that this regular checkup, well, you know, normally I have, you know, my dog hates the vet. My dog's going to bite somebody. My dog doesn't like other dogs. He's reactive. He's aggressive, whatever. And that energy isn't healthy for anybody, and especially not for your dog, because your dog needs to know that you are calm and confident and steady and consistent. And by giving your dog that very calm and relaxed energy, and petting your dog, your dog is going to be less reactive and less upset at the vet's office. And isn't that kind of, you know, what we want? Isn't it really? So I think that's what we have to try to do is to try to think about it and think like a dog and think about how our energy is affecting our dog's behavior. I'm not telling anybody how to feel because I don't do that. Contrary to popular opinion, I do not do that. I'm not going to tell you how you should feel. I don't know. And let me tell you, I don't want to know how you feel. I got enough going on in my own brain and my own heart. I don't want to know. But I will tell you that the more upset and anxious you become, the more upset and anxious your dog will become. And to make matters worse, probably the worst thing of all is it can impact not just their behavior, but their physical health. The same thing as when a child gets very ill. The child will recover. The parents are the ones who have, you know, other health issues and other all kinds of issues because the parents are the ones who are grieving and who are upset about the child because they're parents. I mean, that's what parents do. Parents grieve when a child has a problem or when a child is ill or or injured. So we, I get it. I mean, listen, that's that's being a parent, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But you don't want to make that become the absolute, um, you know, the whole pretense of, of you, the rest of your life, because then you're not enjoying the child. You're not enjoying the dog. It's so important. Just try to enjoy your dog, enjoy your, your pets, and don't get so negative because chances are hopefully your dog is going to do okay and it might even recover fully depending on where you are and which vet you go to there are some of these vets like the, the where i am where i work where i mean they literally take dogs that are hit by a car like you you can't even imagine and they save them they take dogs with the worst kidney failure your veterinarian's ever seen in his entire life and tells you that. That's a, that's a genius right there. And the right vet hospital will save that dog and give you years, you know, years more in the future with that dog. So think about if you had time, right? And this is what I tell people. Try to prepare ahead of time. The worst thing that people do, in my opinion, besides getting the wrong dog or besides getting a dog in the first place, is make sure you have a contingency plan. Make sure you have an emergency, a safety plan. If you live in an area that has a lot of tornadoes or a lot of hurricanes or floods or whatever, have a route planned out, have a place, and practice it, just like a fire drill would be in school with kids. Try to think of how you could possibly make things easier if something happens. So I know I always have a full tank of gas. I don't go below a half a tank of gas. I look to see how many miles I can go, and if it isn't good enough for a round trip to my emergency vet, where I am, where I work, is I will 
fill the tank up when I get home, before I get home. I will not have an eighth of a tank. Some of you guys do silly things like that. I have seen people run out of gas with a sick child, a pregnant woman in the car, a sick dog, and you run out of gas. Like, really? Isn't that something you could have prepared for? Like, it's really not that hard. It's not like we're in the Jimmy Carter time where you're on a, you know, odd even gas line and you're paying $4 a gallon back then. Um, it's very easy to get gas. Make sure you always have your car where you're not blocked in. If you park, if you have a dog and you park where other people park, make sure you're the last one out and that you're facing your, the nose of your car out. Why? Because God forbid if something happens and that other, that person's car does not start or if that person is sleeping and you can't find the car keys or the person did whatever the person did, you may wind up not being able to actually get into your car and drive your dog to an emergency vet. So that really is very important. Um, make sure that you have a clear path. Make sure your vehicle is re- as reliable as it can be. Have a full tank of gas. Make sure you check your tires, your fluids. When you stop the car, so like let's say every night, just, you know, or, or every few nights, just kind of look around your car, walk around, and say like, oh, that tire looks a little low. Or maybe just check your tires every so often, maybe every week or a couple times a week. Make sure you don't get a flat on the highway or something. So there are things you can do that make it easier. And you know what the best thing is? It's always great to have one emergency hospital. It's better to have two. It's better to have three. I have four vet hospitals within an hour and a half of me, and I know that if I have a dog who has a problem and isn't going to make it an hour and 15 minutes but can make it 12 minutes, I will go to that vet hospital even though it's not my choice. I will go to that one because it's closer. And if I have a dog who's critical, that extra hour really matters. But if it's something where I know that the dog, you know, can make it for that hour or two or three or four or five hours, but it's definitely still an emergency, I will go up to the one of my choosing. So make yourself a little list. Put that on your refrigerator or put that somewhere. I tell everybody, have a little journal with your dog's information. So you can put the date, and it can be a little folder, a little, you know, one of those little composition notebooks that's like, you know, 60 cents that we used to use when we were kids, the marble front. So what you can do is actually take one of those, and on the inside cover, put the name of your vet, put the name of an alternate vet, put the name of two or three emergency vet hospitals, and then... On the bottom of that or on the opposite page, put any medical conditions the dog has, any medications the dog's on, and better is if you can actually take a picture and just put a little uh, printed copy of the medication so you don't have to worry about the, the whole thing with putting together bottles and all that. But the more information they have, like if the dog has a seizure disorder, know how much the dog needs of each medication and when the last dose was given. So it's nice. You have a little journal and it helps you and it'll help whoever the people are who are going to be trying to help your pet in the middle of the night or wherever it is and whatever time it is so that you're not being, oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't remember. It's like something for seizures. Well, there's a lot of different things that are used for seizures. There are a lot of different things that are used for a lot of different things. The other thing, and it sounds crazy, depending on where you live, take a bag, like, let's say, enough for two days' worth, put dog food. So I literally have a five-pound bag of the dog food that I use for my dogs, and it's kind of like a Ziploc. So I will have that in my car, and so it doesn't go bad. I'll change it out every couple days, but this way. Or you can also put it somewhere, let's say, where you're – put your keys or where you would put the leash so that in an emergency, if you have to get out quickly, you can get out quickly because you have all those things there. So you can have your little journal. Um, Another thing you can do is actually make your journal and then take pictures of it when you, you know, like every couple of days or so, 
or at the night or whenever. Or if your dog starts not looking good, just take a picture of the pages because now you have that. Trying to prepare for what might happen is the best, best way to ensure that your pet is going to get through everything as best as humanly possible. But if you're not like that and you're just running out and you scoop the dog up and you're hysterical and you have other people with you who are hysterical and you get to the vet's office and you realize you don't know the medications the dog was on, you don't have any of his medical information, you didn't bring the number of your vet, you don't remember the number of your vet, you don't know who your vet is, you don't have a vet, whatever. The more information you have, the greater the chance that the emergency hospital will be able to help you. If you don't have information and you don't know what you're talking about when they ask you questions, then it, it can be a problem. And one thing also, if you see your dog starting to get sick and if he starts vomiting or he starts getting diarrhea, remember, dogs can get dehydrated in like less than 24 hours. So if you say, oh, yeah, he's drinking and, and you know, he stopped eating, but he's drinking fine, if it's uncharacteristic for your dog to have that behavior, then you need to call your veterinarian. That's, it's that simple. And if you can't afford a visit, you know, for 40, 50, 60, 90, whatever dollars, then have a credit card. And I tell everybody that, that there are credit cards that you can use, but you can really do it with any of them. Get yourself a credit card that, or a prepaid, like one of those vanilla cards, like a prepaid. Don't use the money. Just put, like, put money in it like it's a savings account. So if you put like $5 a week in, or $10 a week. After a year at $10 a week, that's $520. So now if you don't use that, keep putting still the $10 a week. If you can afford health insurance for the pet, which I say if you can't afford health insurance, it's a sure sign that you're going to need it. If you guys had insurance, you never have to worry about your dog not being able to get the care he deserves. Some of these places are ridiculously expensive, but, you know, to have an emergency hospital where veterinarians are, you know, specialists and like where I work, where they're all specialists, where they all go out, they've all got specialties. In other words, they've gone to vet school for four years and then they've gone to an additional three years and additional testing. And it can take even a few more years beyond that. So they might spend five years on their specialty beyond the four years. One of our veterinarians is board certified, dual board certified in internal medicine and in neurology, neurosurgery. Well, guess what? That veterinarian is going to charge more for his specialty services than your vet who graduated from, you know, a, a, a vet school that's an okay vet school with just a, a general, you know, general practice. So it's not that your vet with a general practice isn't good. It's just that they don't have that additional training. That's why it's always best if you can, if you get the insurance, you have pet health insurance, you do that. What will wind up happening is you're going to check and you're going to know, okay, this vet hospital has a great orthopedist. This vet hospital has great soft tissue surgeon. This vet hospital has an eye specialist. This vet hospital has a cardiologist. That's how it's gotten now where instead of one person knowing everything or knowing a little about a lot, you have these experts who know a lot about a lot, but they know everything or close to everything about their specialty. And when you have a place that has the best of the best of the best of these people, maybe it has an MRI, maybe they've got only licensed, like where I work, they only use licensed vet techs. Well, licensed vet tech might make 20 or $25 an hour, 30 $35 even some of them, where your vet tech in a local you know, vet hospital might make maybe $14. So licensed vet techs cost a lot more because they're licensed. It doesn't necessarily mean they're better but or that they're worse. It just means that they have a standard that they have adhered to. So 
when you start looking at why an emergency hospital might charge 180 or $200, where your regular vet charges 100 or 110 or 90 or whatever it is, it's because of all those different reasons of all the expenses. And it's also paying its staff a full staff, including people on the phones and client care and, you know, vet techs and veterinarians and maintenance and facilities people and, you know, people you don't even think about. You know that nice cushy blanket that they put on the floor for your dogs or those towels, those nice soft towels? Somebody's got to launder them after each use and they've got to fold them and they've got to bring them up. And they've got to buy and maintain washing machines and dryers. They've got to maintain equipment. They've got to spend so much money to have the state-of-the-art equipment for you and get the best surgeons and get the best doctors, the best veterinarians there. That's why it's more expensive. But if your vet isn't there and you need a vet at 2 in the morning, don't complain that, that you're having to pay more of course you're having to pay more because they have a lot more expenses at one of those hospitals than your local veterinarian. And that's why you should prepare. I tell everybody, come up with a couple conditions. And a lot of times they won't even know, like they'll ask you how much the dog weighs. So if you said, well, how much is it to spay my 60-pound dog? You can call a few different places and know how much it's going to cost to spay your 60-pound dog. But... If you, let's say, you know, have an emergency, you don't think about that. You know, if you say, just come up with something. Hey, if my dog has, you know, breaks his leg, all right, and it's a simple, you know, setting, it's a simple set, okay, how much would that cost? A lot of times they won't be able to say anything, but if you said, well, just a rough idea, they may say, like, even if you say, how much is a spay for my 80-pound dog? Oh, that's $1,300. Okay, can you tell me? Why that's 1300 Well, we have a board-certified soft tissue surgeon, and we have a state-of-the-art facility. Well, I pay that 1300 But if somebody else says, well, we're only 700 but, you know, I don't have a surgical, you know, any kind of specialty, and, you know, I'm operating out of my garage, well, you know, you get what you pay for. It's like people who, you know, buy dogs, and we've talked ad nauseum about that, People who are buying dogs who, you know, are kind of, you know, these designer things that you you guys buy like they're an accessory, and you're spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on these dogs, and, you know, they get TPLO issues. They get, you know, all different, you know, eye, juvenile cataracts or breathing issues or megasophagus or weird cancers or whatever, if you know at least, it's like getting pet health insurance. I know the best insurance because I've gotten for, with Wyatt over 150000 for one of them. Uh, with for Wyatt, over 125, probably closer to 135000 for WISPA. That was just money that I didn't have to pay. I only had to pay 10% plus a little deductible for that. But can you imagine having to spend $400,000 to get four or five of your dogs to live longer and to have a better life? Well, if you have insurance, you don't have to worry about that. Then you can just make medical decisions based on what you think is best for the dog rather than saying, well, I don't have $12,000 for that surgery and that aftercare. I just don't have it. But if you could have gotten the 1200 plus, let's say, a 250 deductible, so if you could pay $1,200, $1,450, Instead of twelve thousand, would you make a different decision? And very often, the answer is yes. And if it is, go get yourself pet health insurance. Best thing I've ever done is insuring all of my dogs, and I have the best company out there, and I love them, and they're really phenomenal. So we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back in a moment with from shelter dog to service dog. So you stay tuned. We'll be right back. So we are going to talk today about how you can train your dog to be a not-service dog, 
but an actual emotional support dog, like a legitimate service dog would have to be task trained. But you can train your dog to do other tasks and other skills that don't require it to be a service dog. Now, why do I want to talk about this today? Because my friends, Rainy and Ashley, her daughter, reached out to me. And I think what happens is sometimes when people have something happen to them, sometimes it kind of spurs them on to realizing that maybe the dog could do more. You know, about one in a hundred dogs could be a full, and I'm pretty generous on that. It's probably more like one in 250 or 300, but about that number of dogs is able to be trained to be an actual legitimate service dog, meaning the dog is not afraid of things, so you can train it to do skills in public. The dog is healthy, has good conformation. The dog is able to think. The thought process is super, super important because you have to make sure that the dog is going to understand what you're asking of it. So now imagine for a moment that you have a dog at your house and that it would be so cool if you could have that dog do a skill or a task that could mitigate a disability you have. Let's say you have panic attacks. We can train your dog, and you can train the dog, and it can be an assistance dog, but it doesn't have to be a full-fledged service dog. And I explain to people the difference between a service dog and an assistance dog versus a therapy dog or, uh, you know, a cancer detection dog. Let's think about, remember when we were kids, all rectangles are squares. No, all squares are rectangles, right? Remember that? We'd say, oh, all rectangles. No, all squares are rectangles. Think about that. Because a rectangle, right, four right angles, and at least two sides on each side have to be the same length. So you have all squares are considered rectangles. But all rectangles, are they all squares? Well, no. A rectangle can be long. It can be short and fat. It can be a square. Same thing with service dogs and assistance dogs. A service dog is a type of assistance dog, but all assistance dogs are not service dogs. So to me, an emotional support dog or an in-home service dog, which some people call like a a home study dog or a, a home buddy dog, there are, or home helper dog, there are, are definitely tasks that your dog can do for you to help you. Perhaps you have a bad back. Well, if you have a dog who likes to pick things up, you can train him how to pick things up. He doesn't have to go out in public access. So even if the dog doesn't have the greatest temperament and isn't great with other people, he can still help you in the house. He can't be a service dog if he's going to be going out in public, obviously, if he's not got a very good temperament and, you know, able to handle all the rigors of the work. But if you have a dog who can be helpful to you, he can be an assistance dog for you. And you can self-train your dog. You just need to know how. What I would tell you to do is be really careful when you're using any kind of food rewards because food rewards, first of all, I call it obedience through obesity, but food rewards, the issue with that is that when you're rewarding a dog with food, they become very food-driven. And if you take a breed like a Lab or a Golden that's already overly on like hyper uh, aware of food, so if you start giving him food, then every time he looks at you or every time he thinks you're going to ask him to help, he's up there right away with like, okay, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? The problem is we don't want that from a dog. We want a dog who's going to become automatic, which is how Merlin's kids train. This is how uh, all of my organizations train using behavioral techniques, not at all using treats to reward. If you don't have a treat, does that mean that the dog can't do it or won't do it? I mean, I I would hope not. We want to make sure that your dog can help you because it wants to help you, not because it has to or not because it's looking to see what it can get from you. So one of the most important issues, I think, is making sure that when you're training your dog, they have a good relationship with the dog. 
taking your dog for a walk using a gentle leader is great, or if it's just a slip lead, try to get away from, you know, using prong collars and choker chains and shot collars and bribery to get your dog to behave. Respect is why my dogs behave. Respect and love. They love me more than any dog is going to ever love anybody because they know that I care for them. They know that I take care of them. They know that no matter where we are, they're safe. They know also that if they misbehave, they're not going to be in trouble. They're just going to learn that what they did wrong and they're going to learn a better way to do it. So that's what I want you to think about. If you have a disability, an illness, an injury, and you might need a dog, and that dog just might be able to help you, you can train them. And it's better for you to self-train the dog, but don't use food. And I would not advise just using your local dog trainer because to train a, a service dog, there's very few people who are actually legitimately able to train a dog to become a service dog. Every local dog trainer thinks they can train service dogs. If you don't know what it is and you don't, you've never done it before, you can ha- somebody can help train you just basics. But so far, everybody I've ever seen, and there's a lot, I mean hundreds on hundreds of people who've tried to train service dogs unsuccessfully, all use either food rewards or, you know, some of them use stock collars, which <laughs> I don't know how you train a service dog with a shock collar. That's kind of crazy. But that's the um, the issue is making sure that you're teaching the dog, not necessarily training the dog. So one of the things that you need and, and one of the first things you need is to learn, do not take the name of the Lord thy dog in vain. Do not yell your dog's name. Let's say the dog's name is Rufus. Rufus, get over here because he's being bad. I wouldn't go if you were calling or screaming like that at me. I, the last thing I do is come to you, probably go the other way. It's why so many dogs run away from their owners when their owner starts screaming for them when the dog like, gets out the door or something. Main idea here, folks, is don't use your dog's name in a negative light. Do not yell at him, Fluffy, what did you do? Because then when you yell, Fluffy, no, because he's running out the door, he keeps going and he goes farther and faster because he thinks he's in trouble. It's like when you were a kid and your parents, instead of saying Mary Smith, they would go, Mary Catherine Smith. You'd be like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Same thing with dogs. Don't use their name because that's like using your middle name. When you were a kid, you knew you were in trouble. You weren't going to come. It's like saying, hey, get over here because I'm going to beat you. No, I'm not coming to you. So you want to make sure that you use the dog, if you're going to use the dog's name, that you use the dog's name in a happy way. So you can say, Rufus, come here, buddy. Or Rufus, come. Or Rufus, come heal, which is what my husband, 30 some odd years of police canine, who used to train other people to do uh, canine detection. Um, my husband used to do that. He'd always say, come heal, because the heal is what's catchy. Come is a very boring word, but come heal. The dogs will hear that. It's almost like a whistle, so it's a catchy word. So that's why. So Rufus, come heal. Good Rufus, good come heal. And repeat the name of, if you are going to use a command, repeat the command name, whatever you're going to say. If it's come command, come heal. Good come heal. Teaching your dog how to go to the bathroom on command. Yeah, you can really do that. It's very cool. If I've got a service dog and I'm getting on a flight and I've got a layover and I know I've got 10 or 12 hours between the flight and the layover, uh, first thing I'm going to do is tell my dog outside and Wyatt used to go all the time, Wyatt, go take a break. And he would lift his leg or squat or whatever. And if I told him again, go take a break, then he would go and he would try to poop. So. By teaching your dog those two simple skills, the dog is able to be prepared and ready to go do his job. So if you say, you know, Rufus, come heal. If you want to pet him and love on him, that is great. But, you know, think about it. 
It's like, Rufus, come. Rufus, come. Rufus, do you want this Twinkie? And, you know, Rufus isn't coming because now you changed your energy. Now your dog feels like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Well, unless your dog is not very bright, he's going to figure out pretty quickly that when you're yelling at him like a crazy person that he's going to get in trouble so he doesn't want to come when you call him. So let's think about that for a second, folks. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy dog in vain. Don't yell at a person, at a little kid, at a dog or a puppy. Don't yell because all you're doing is losing the argument, losing the conversation, and losing the trust and respect of the child or the adult or the puppy or the adult dog. So that's what you need to start doing is start trying to get and regulate yourself so that when you're calling the dog, you're not getting him thinking like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Worst thing in the world is I'm in trouble. How many little kids or, or teens end up running away because they did something bad or they thought there was something going on, they thought they were going to get in trouble? That's exactly what happens. So we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. We want to make sure that your dog is going to be happy. We want to make sure that your dog is going to love you but also respect you. The dog is going to come when you call him because that's what he needs to do. He needs to come when you call him. And then once your dog is getting good at come heal, then you can also start throwing in the louder voice that you might have in case you got upset because the dog was running away or wasn't listening and there was a dangerous thing, like my friend's dog just got bitten by a rattlesnake right in the face. Um, Another friend of mine who's moving out of an area that has a lot of rattlesnakes, um, she wanted me to do rattlesnake training. I do that too. Um, But it's basically teaching the dog not to go near things that he shouldn't be near. Rattlesnake isn't going to go after a dog unless the dog goes towards the rattlesnake. If the rattlesnake's under a rock or behind a rock and the dog is right next to you, why does the dog need training? Well, dogs need training because they're hunting. They're out there looking for food. Well, if they're looking for food and they see something low and small, relatively, moving around, they just might do that. They just might decide, I'm going to go check that out. Maybe I can go get that. And that's why dogs get bitten, and that's why dogs also get into fights with hedgehogs or groundhogs or, you know, skunks, raccoons, possums, you know, you name it. Because what winds up happening is the dog thinks it's got to provide for you by hunting and protect you by obviously, you know, going after whatever it is that might be going after you. But the key is making sure that the dog is going to, like, no question, but that the dog is going to listen to you because he respects you and he's following you to see where you're going and what you're doing because his job should not be to provide for your needs and protect you. His job should be, quite the contrary, to just go be a dog, to be a little kid. Oh, it's okay, Rufus. You just go and hang out, buddy. You just go play because I'm watching. And when you're going through a doorway or through the door to go outside, don't let your dog run ahead of you. You go out first. You wouldn't let your three-year-old child go outside if you thought there might be a rattlesnake there or if you thought there might be some other kind of animal or kind of disturbance or danger there. That's what I'm talking about. So I think that's very important for everybody to think about why your dog may not listen to you. Stop trying to bribe your dog. Stop giving your dog treats to give to a stranger when the dog is terrified of the stranger so that you're reinforcing and rewarding the dog's fear of the stranger because the stranger gives the dog candy or gives the dog a treat or a pretzel or whatever. And it's the same thing as Halloween. I remember as a kid, my overprotective parents. And I remember going trick-or-treating, and my mom or my dad, depending on who went with us or both, would, after we got candy, and this was going back a few years, 
He'd say, let us, don't eat any of the candy till we see it. Okay? We have to check that candy first. Now, I don't know what made my mother and father the consummate professional candy checkers, but they did a good job because I never died from any of the Halloween candy. And if it wasn't wrapped right or it looked like there was a hole in it, they would take it and they would discard it. Well, I wasn't happy, especially if it was something I really wanted, but my parents' job was to take care of me, to provide for my needs and to protect me. Same thing as your parents' job is, same thing as your your job for your dog. Your job for your dog is to provide for that dog and protect that dog. How do you do that? Well, that's what my book is for because I can't go into all this every week and tell you exactly what you need to know in less than an hour. I try real hard, but it's, it's tough. But what you can do is start preparing, is start getting your dog used to things such as a muzzle. People say, but my dog's a good dog. Well, my dog's the best dog in the world. They'd never bite anybody. Well, Janice, why do you have to train your dog to have a muzzle on? Well, I don't know if my dog is really sick or if I have a veterinarian who's afraid of the dog or the dog is in pain or whatever. You know, as good as anything is, as good as a person or uh, or a little kid or as good as a dog can be or any animal can be, when they're scared or they're hurt, things can change. So if a veterinarian will not work with my dog or my animal or my client's pet, any of my patients, because that dog doesn't have a muzzle, I don't want the first time that dog has a muzzle on to be when it's stressed already. I also, even though I don't keep my dogs in crates, I do believe that they need to learn that for the same reason. If they're in a vet hospital and they're sick or they're injured and they have to be in a crate or in a contained cage or some kind of dog run, if they've never been confined, they can have confinement aggression, they can have containment aggression issues where they're tied up or they're restrained or they're, you know, in a different situation that they're not used to that they've never had before. So when my dogs, because most of my dogs, well, any of my Rhodesian Ridgebacks, they're all show dogs. Guess what? Best thing in the world for them is to travel around with my awesome handler and go to places and be handled by different people and to see that, hey, you're fine. And look, everybody else is fine too. That's what we do with a lot of our service dogs in training. We actually take these dogs, the puppies or, you know, the dogs in general, and we send them out with some of our friends who are dog show handlers because they can take them all over the place, even if they don't go on the show grounds. The dogs get used to being handled by different people. They get used to being in a crate. They get used to the bumpy road. They get used to things changing. They get used to going to different places and different smells, different weather, different types of people. And that's why my dogs are so great when they go in the vet. And every vet I've used my whole life, other than my little Scotties I had as a kid, every veterinarian says, I've never met so many amazing, like, well-behaved dogs. They're, like, we can do anything. They say that with whisper. And why? Like, we can do anything to your dogs. Like, it, they're just incredible. That's because they started out, most of my dogs, like I said, are show dogs. So they go out and they get used to life. And the worst thing with COVID and that's why so many of my patients have more problems now than they ever did. And that's why they become my patients because they had problems. They were perfect. Nobody would have called me. But what happened is you take puppies or young dogs. So a dog who was anything under a year and a half old when COVID started, all those dogs, so every dog, like three and a half years old down to like little puppies, they weren't able to be socialized. So, you know, you don't just take a puppy and go, oh, I took him to all the puppy classes. We graduated. He's 12 weeks old. We're finished. <clears throat> no, that's not the way it works. Because at 12 weeks, that's just where you got to start. And you got to literally keep that dog socialized for the first year and a half to two years of its life and keep taking it out. Take it for walks with other dogs. Let it go near other dogs. Let it smell other dogs. Of course, just being careful because there's so many things out there for dogs and for humans. 
but socialize and get those dogs out because otherwise your dog is just going to turn into one of those dogs at the shelter that can't be adopted because nobody did the right thing. And it's very, very sad. It's very, very scary. And it's very hard when I look at a dog and I say, oh, my God, if, if I had that dog from the time it was little, that would be the best dog in the world. And look at this poor dog. Look how afraid it is. Look how aggressive it is. Look how whatever it is. Because that's why we have to make sure we get every dog that you have or if you have friends, tell them about that. Let them know. Hey, you know, get your dog used to a muzzle. Get your dog used to, here's another thing, a coat or a blanket, even if it doesn't need one. Get it a little raincoat. Put a little Halloween costume on it. Get it used to having its ears touched. Get him used to having his feet touched. Put booties on him. Mess with your dog when he's little and keep messing with him. Stick your fingers kind of all around them. You know, not way down the ear, but dogs have an L-shaped ear canal, so unlike with humans where our ears are on the side of our heads and our ear canals go straight in. So if you stick a Q-tip in, it'll come out the other side and break both of your eardrums. But dogs have an L-shaped eardrum. So you can go pretty much all the way down to the bottom as long as you're not curving around, um, you know, with like a pipe cleaner or something. Um, as long as you're going straight down, you can put your finger pretty far down in there. Just make sure you don't hurt the dog. Go gently. But you can use like an ear wipe or something like that. And by doing that and by making sure that, you know, you're really careful to do all these things, touch the dog around the head, touch or you know, roll your hands around his teeth, like check his teeth, make sure that there's no broken teeth, touch everything, touch his tail, touch his underside, touch his legs, his toes, his face, and do that lovingly but do that and have even other people do that because that's how you get your dog to be so well behaved and be such a good you know patient someday um if he does have to go into a vet's office or into an emergency situation or be transported anywhere well you know it's crazy how quickly time passes and it is already time to go can't even believe it so if you guys have learned anything, anything at all, teach it to your friends, teach it to your neighbors, teach it to other people who own dogs. Let them know about the show for the love of dog and from shelter dog to service dog. And make sure you come back next week, same time, or get us on podcast. Have a great, wonderful, happy, happy Mother's Day to all of you who are moms. Happy Mother's Day to everybody because we all had a mother. Might not have been the best or the worst, but we all had a mother, and she's the reason that we're all here and that why our dogs are here and everything is here on Earth. Lots of love to all of you, and see you next week. 